my again my hope comes from the remarkable technologies being invented from the young people organizing from the you know the question is not to me whether or not in 40 years we'll have the technologies and the political consensus to act the question is whether you believe it will be too late Welcome to What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. We're focusing in on the United States again this week, but shifting our focus on to the national level, specifically the politics of polarisation and how it impacts what the federal government does or does not do about the climate crisis. My guest for this, the 11th episode of the podcast, is the political commentator Ezra Klein. Ezra is the founder and editor of Vox.com, the award-winning explanatory news organization. He is the host of the excellent podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, and recently published the book Why We're Polarized, which draws from history, political science, and psychology to carefully explain how different groups of Americans can see politics through such different lenses. We touch on a number of different topics in our conversation, but I opened by asking Ezra for his view on what we can do to shift the systemic barriers preventing action on climate change in the US, and asked him to pick up some of the themes in his book. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Now, here's my conversation with Ezra Klein. Ezra, thank you so much for joining us. Um, One of your colleagues interviewed Davis Wallace-Wells last year on your podcast, Um, and it sounded like it was quite a a difficult conversation um, because it it, it was quite stark in terms of the challenge that we face if we don't act on climate change. David got quite a lot of coverage here in New Zealand uh, for that book and, you know, was on our national radio and and so on. and I think it was, I mean, it's an extraordinary book. It is very, very stark. But one thing that I found a bit frustrating about it was at the end, his prescription for addressing the climate crisis was to tell better stories. And and to me, that felt like it was a bit reductive. And I just wanted to ask you with the, the kind of breadth of experience that you have talking to the people that you've spoken to, what do you think we need to do to address the more kind of systemic drivers here in terms of the politics of that shift? Oh, so, so starting with a small, easy question. I could just, sure, just why not? ease right in. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I don't know that I'm more optimistic than David. Um, I, I want to start by just being honest about what I know and I don't know. I'm not a climate science expert. Climate change is something that I do my best to understand, and it is a, as people like to say, a hyper object. There's a lot to wrap your mind around. And I know American politics quite well, and I know other countries' politics quite poorly. So you're, you're, you'll, you'll hear what I can comment on um, with some knowledge and, and, and what I can't. I will say that in America, I think that there are two or three significant problems that may or may not resonate for folks in New Zealand. The one that I'm not sure will, but that I think is very significant, 
is that America's political system is not designed to work under conditions of party and political polarization. And I want to be very careful that both sides of that are important. It is not just that America, like many other countries, has developed more discrete political parties, more different political coalitions, sharper ideological divides. It is that we have political institutions that are not designed for parties at all and that have different veto points and supermajority requirements that make it so they tend to become paralyzed in periods of polarization. So one just issue for climate change is a pervasive issue across basically every American question right now, which is you can't do anything most of the time. Right. We have mass shootings. You can't pass gun control. We have tens of millions of uninsured people. You can't um, expand health reform. We have uh, 12 million people living here undocumented and large majority say they want to pass to citizenship. We can't pass that. So climate change to some degree ends up caught in the same institutional paralysis everything else does. The secondary issue, which I think is a little bit more specific to climate change, is simply that it is, in fact, a hard problem to solve. And when you talk about stories, the place where I think stories might come in handy here, although it does end up depending on what you think the solution is, is a story that we tell about climate change and solving it tends to be a story of sacrifice, loss, and culpability. That we have to do less, have less, burn less, expect less. Um, and there may be an argument to this. I, I'm not in a position where I'm going to like cast the degrowth movement aside and tell you they're all wrong. But I think something we have had trouble articulating and that I at least believe there's a good chance is true is that decarbonizing the economy could be a path towards a better, as Saul Griffith put it on my show, more awesome life that we would have in, in this effort a better economy. We would have electricity that is cheaper and more widespread. We would have heating systems that are better and cause less air pollution. That over and over, we would have cars that are better, that run silently, that you know cost us less over time. I think sometimes we've forgotten how to tell an exciting story around technology. And to the extent I have moments of climate optimism, they come from a belief in technology, which will have to be combined with politics to have wide enough um, advances in dispersal. But that if we could align ourselves to a vision of a future in which we harnessed technology and channeled it through politics to solve one of the great problems our world faces, there is something exciting about that vision that I think is sometimes lost in the discourse. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. You, your analysis of how the institutions are set up because I, as you were speaking I was thinking that New Zealand is organised in almost the opposite way politically so Bless our you. parliament is, in, is, is <laughs> well it's built around an adversary well I could argue that not a lot happens here as well right uh, but um, and, and there's plenty of institutional inertia but it is actually set up around a party system so it, it, you know, we have a, a, a proportional representation system which uh, people get two votes. You vote for your local constituent member of parliament, like you vote for your representative uh, in the district that you're in in the US. But then you get a second vote, which is the party that I kind of would like to run the country. And, and so what that means is that um, parties get a, a proportion of the House that 
equates to their national percentage of the vote. Um, and so it's, it actually institutionalizes the party system, but also it is built in a completely adversarial way. So our, the, our, the House of Representatives is a horseshoe with a line down the middle, whereas yours is a semicircle. Um, and, uh, and so we actually face off against each other the way that they do in the UK. Um, but interestingly enough, we, we have a high degree not total, but a high degree of consensus around climate change. So when we passed our Zero Carbon Act last year, it went through unopposed at third reading, which meant you know there was literally no one who voted against it. Um, and and you know that may not necessarily hold in the future, but I guess and and there will be many more difficult moments to come. And I guess the question that I've got is, what are the signs of polarization? You know, like what's the what's the canary in the coal mine uh, that you need to watch out for. I don't know that I would think about it that way. Your system is set up for polarization. That's the the distinct difference. I, I should say here that I've always had a very strongly favorable background impression of the New Zealand political system because my colleague Dylan Matthews some number of years ago wrote a piece about how you guys have the model political system that, that, that the U.S. could learn from. And I trust Dylan on all things. Now, I'm sure if you're in it, like anything, it has its problems. But what you're saying there and the way it is set up to explicitly balance parties against each other, to have an adversarial relationship, but to also allow parties and coalitions to win power is what we don't have. So I am not somebody who believes necessarily that polarization is intrinsically a bad thing. Oftentimes, the alternative to polarization is different kinds of idea suppression, either ideas being suppressed by elites or being suppressed by a racial majority. When you have either a structure where the debates happen within groups as opposed to between them, that often creates an incentive for groups to downplay the things that divide them, um, or when it is simply uh, impossible to resolve disputes, that has the same quality. So the question for polarization is not whether it exists, but whether it's healthy or unhealthy. There are times when a society needs to have a conflict over something, times when a society needs to have a debate. I mean, the the great beauty of politics is that it gives us a, a, a space in which we can disagree, hopefully, peacefully, and that there can actually be answers, and then there can be adjustments, and then there can be reversals, and we can go on, on, on in that direction. Now, the question on climate change seems to me to be a little bit more distinct and a little different. I would worry very much if I were in New Zealand and I began to see a big denialist movement taking off. I would worry very much if I were in New Zealand and I began to see huge amounts of spending by multinational fossil fuel conglomerates trying to distort and undermine people's understanding of the research and what was going to happen. Um, I'm all for healthy debate. I'm not a huge fan of manipulated debates, and I'm definitely not a huge fan of fact-free or post-truth debates. And the problem with the American debate over climate change, uh, in my view, is that it has over time really developed those dimensions. There are certain debates we have that I don't enjoy as a citizen, but I recognize that they pit two legitimate positions against each other, either legitimate positions of factual interpretation, what will do the most to grow the economy, or legitimate um values, right? Like what kind of country do we want and how should that shape our immigration system? And then there are debates that one side or the other is arguing 
in bad faith, um, or even if not in bad faith, off of a bad set of facts. And, and climate change here has very much had that quality. We've been stuck, not in, I think, a healthy debate over how to solve it, where maybe the Republican Party would have market-oriented solutions and you know funding for R&D and so on, or carbon tax, right? For there was a long time when one of the top Republican economists in the country, Greg Mankiw, he had this thing he called the, the Pigou Club, or Pigou, I don't remember how you say that economist's name, but it was a, it was a Republican-led idea for a carbon tax. I would love to have the debate between Democrats, more government-oriented, Green New Deal, large-scale mobilization, public subsidies, command and control, regulation approach, and Republicans who wanted to price carbon. Um, Having debate over whether or not climate change is real, that is an unhealthy kind of polarization. And then having that debate take place in systems that cannot host that debate or um, lead to a winner of that debate is an unhealthy form of institutional paralysis that the world can scarcely afford. Can I ask you how that happened? Because, as you said, there was a time when the Republicans were arguing for a price on emissions. Um, there was a strong movement there for a cap-and-trade mechanism, uh, which is which is actually the system that we use here in New Zealand through our emissions trading scheme. Um, and, and, the, and actually it was the Republican Party who were championing those ideas. And they've gone from that to, you know, essentially you know, denial, there, saying that there are different, it doesn't exist. Or, there are yeah. different views on this, and I don't always feel that I understand it fully well enough to choose between them. Let me try to give an overview of this debate and then, and then, and then maybe offer some commentary on it. So one view that I think is quite popular is simply that it was money. Fossil fuel money flooded into the Republican Party. The Koch brothers became its biggest donors. Um, but, you know, Exxon and Shell and others played big roles here. You know, Rex Tillerson, the head of Exxon, eventually became Donald Trump's secretary of state, at least for a minute. And that it was from there, right? The Republican Party was bought off. Um, Maybe true. I tend to think that uh, true cynicism... Um, somebody taking taking money to say something they don't really believe is true is rarer in politics than people believe it is. True bribery is a little bit rarer than people believe it is. That is my experience with politicians. Not that it never happens, but that people people like to be sincere. Um, and they like to, they convince themselves very effectively. This is a big part of my book over what it is they need to believe. So another thing that seems to me to have happened during this period was a kind of culture war polarization around the issue itself. Um, When Al Gore brought out An Inconvenient Truth and this increasingly became uh, an idea associated with Democrats, it has, we have seen in American politics over and over again, a kind of automatic choosing of sides when one party becomes associated with a, a plan. I mean, another good example of this is the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, which was quite explicitly modeled off of Republican ideas. It was built off of an idea where Republicans introduced in the Senate in 94 as an alternative to Bill Clinton's failed health care reforms. It was then um, implemented in Massachusetts by a Republican governor, Mitt Romney. And then Democrats, in a bid for compromise, made that their plan, not single payer. And the Republican Party abandoned their own plan and began to believe it was unconstitutional as written. So there is an almost hydraulic quality of opposition that can emerge that seems to have very little to do with previously what's seem to be deeply held commitments or um, spaces for bipartisanship. I tend to favor that explanation a little bit more, but there's no doubt that there's an interaction effect between them. The final thing, this has been shown by many political comparative political scientists over and over again, 
it reflects our political culture, and I don't feel I can fully tell you the roots of it. Climate change is an issue. America is a country that is unusually skeptical of taxation, of regulation, and of public action. And climate change is an issue that in different ways requires all three. And so you put that together with it also being an issue where the worst effects are loaded out into the future, loaded out in many cases into other countries, so that you are asking people to do things that in most cases they don't want to do right now to stop a future, a problem they cannot feel. And in the American political system, I will say with some understatement, that has not traditionally been a recipe for success. And so there is simply some political advantage seen by Republicans at different moments in turning against it. Particularly the Republican Party, which is built itself against taxes and regulation, and so had, a, I think, more of an ideological orientation against solutions, which created an easier, smoother path to beginning to doubt the problem. Because if it's a real problem, then maybe you have to embrace the solutions. But if it's not a real problem, then you can safely reject the solutions. I mean, there's something in there that resonated strongly with me as an elected representative myself, you know, a professional politician. Uh, which is this idea that because it's owned by one, then the other has to oppose. Uh, and and that, that to me is one of the biggest flaws in the adversarial political system where uh, oppositions have to oppose, right? It's kind of in the job title. Um, and and in, in the kind of highest form of that, the idea is that that improves the quality of government because it's getting tested and challenged at every step about what it's doing, its competence to deliver the quality of its ideas and, and so on. Um, but uh, I think a lot of people, um, and me being inside the system, you know, I see this kind of very close, said it, it, it often is not operating from that highest place. It is, it is you know, about political jockeying and, you know, I get to win and you get to lose um, and and if you lose enough then I get to win the election next time and then I get to go right and the whole the whole kind of cycle repeats itself and yet so many of these colossal challenges of which climate change you know won't surprise you to learn I think is the highest order but there are others that are similarly complex and distributed problems uh, require thinking way beyond that level uh, and and so I don't you know, I mean, I'm not sure that it's unique to the United States. I mean, the United States obviously is going through a moment where it's particularly apparent. Um, but I, I wonder if there's something in the, in the design of systems. I mean, you actually talk about that in your book, right? You collapse systemic problems into personalized narratives. It's in the introductory chapter of your book. Yeah, there, there's... I go back and forth on the value of oppositional political systems. But what I will say is I think they play a role. And I think they play a good role when the political players have the moral fortitude and freedom to know when you have to come together. I mean, it sounds, and you can tell me if this is wrong, but it sounds like compared to the system I exist in, that in New Zealand that's happening. You were saying that uh, the recent standards passed uh, with unanimity. I mean, that is, from my perspective, remarkable, right? That just doesn't happen here. You're catching me um, on, a, on a bad day. And one of the things I'm thinking about in, in talking about this with you is I really appreciate your desire to find the 
resonances in the American system, the warnings. But, and so you're talking to me like I'm a, 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 an expert on some of that, but like I, I want to say, and it feels vaguely disloyal to say this on, on a podcast for a, a minister of a foreign government, but the American political system is failing in the most profound and most dangerous way. Look, I can see both of you on the software we're using, and you're not at home. You're sitting in podcast booths, little pods. I've sat in them. I have some in my office. I can't go to my office. And the reason I can't go to my office is my country has utterly failed to fight the coronavirus. As we're speaking, we are seeing 160 cases per million per day. In Europe, that number is 8.5 across the European Union. In New Zealand, my understanding is you now have none. So there is something distinct happening in America, a failure of governance that goes beyond structural features of the system, which is where I tend to focus, and and into something deeper, into a, a loss of capacity. And I am deeply, deeply concerned about it. I I don't worry so much that the rest of the world is going to catch our flu, but I worry that we are going to fail to hold up our end of the bargain on a number of things, but climate change, particularly given our emissions levels, being the most central. Look, we've had a two-party system in this country for a long time, and for most of that time, it has been, at least in in key cases, oppositional, right? There is oppositional incentives built in any two-party system. It just wasn't the case that for our entire history, you couldn't have the parties come together when that was necessary. Um, It just wasn't the case that party line votes, filibusters were this common. Um, It just wasn't the case that enmity between the parties was this high. We are caught in a set of pathologies and a set of operational failings that has become really profound. And um, and it has made us a danger to ourselves and to others. And it breaks my heart. Like, it's not something embedded in our system. Um, it's something embedded in not just current leadership, but I don't know. I really I, I really worry. Like, and I, I almost like hate to sit here in a normal tone because our failure on climate change, like our failure on coronavirus, is totalizing right now in a way that really scares me. I can I can certainly hear it in your voice. Uh, I, I um, see. I'm trying to keep it together here, man. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, uh, again, I mean, I, um, I, 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 there are there are components of it that that I I have a sense are are occurring elsewhere as well, right? So that it's you know I I don't think that it is a unique situation, but. You know, perhaps because of the the place of the United yeah. States in the world, it's yeah. Let me say about apparent. let me say a few uh, words on the parts of it that aren't unique, because I hear that that's what you're getting at here, and you're right. Um, here are things that I think are not unique to the American situation: the technological infrastructure upon which most modern political communication takes place has become a driver of polarization, and more than a driver of polarization, a driver of extremism. Most things like most of these social media networks, Twitter, YouTube algorithms, et cetera, Facebook, they select for content that creates very strong emotional reactions. And they create an incentive for people to say things that are applauded by their in-group and create conflict with their out-group. So one reason I think you're seeing the simultaneous rise of these various populists of the right, but also to some degree populists of the left in different countries, um, in the UK, Boris Johnson, uh, my family is Brazilian or my father is Brazilian, so I pay close attention to Brazil. And so, of course, Jair Bolsonaro, 
is because we are all exposed to some of the same technologies, of course, some of the same forces of globalization. And so I do think that polarization, systems being pulled to the side, an inability not just to um, manage debate, but sometimes to, to, to be able to hear softer voices when those voices might have agreement with larger swaths of the population, um, that is weakening everywhere simultaneously. Or maybe I shouldn't say everywhere because there are authoritarian countries that have different kinds of control over their communication systems, but very different problems. But it, within among the putatively liberal democracies, that is a, a consistent trend. Um, it's not the case, by the way, that everywhere is becoming more party polarized. There was a recent study on this, and this stuff is hard to measure. But I think it found, if I'm remembering this correctly, that five of the nine countries measured, which were European countries, America and Canada, were saw polarization going down over the past couple of decades. Um, and the American spike was something quite distinct. But I suspect that um, this discourse polarization is infecting the parties or certainly will over time. And I think that's something that, that we're all going to be dealing with. But how well our how functional our systems are in response to that is going to differ system by system and culture by culture. You actually talk about uh, culture on a recent interview with Tarnisi Coates, uh, talking about cultural power trying to win over the America that is to come and that political power is operating behind it. Uh, I thought that was a, a fascinating kind of insight, but I, I'd beg you to expand on that. What did you mean by that? So one of the interesting things about the way that culture and politics diverge is that the central constituencies are different, which is surprising given that you would think, given that they're both happening in the same country, they'd be the same. But culture, which is driven by, to some degree, advertisers looking for customers, by producers looking for customers, and by um, uh, producers looking for audiences, the single most valuable kind of customer is young. Because if you catch them, they're going to be young forever. They're going to be a customer of yours for a long time, not young forever. I feel myself aging, aging by the day. Um, and so there is a, and also you want tastemakers, people who influence many others. And so culture tends to focus on younger, more urban, and uh, now more diverse consumers. Culture is trying to be where the country of tomorrow will be, and it's trying to get there first. And so in America, for instance, Nike made Colin uh, Kaepernick its spokesperson. Um, he's a, you know, was part of a controversial uh, or then controversial, I don't think now controversial protest in, in the NFL. And he was basically blacklisted from being put on any team in the NFL, partially under political pressure. So he lost his ability to do the work of his life. But Nike made him their spokesman because what he represented was meaningful to the customers they want to get. Now, in politics, politics operates, particularly in America, the opposite way. Um, older people vote in higher numbers. The way America's system re-weights vote, voting by geography tends to empower older, whiter, more Christian places um, because of the way our polarization has structured itself around identity. Um, it has become the case that rural areas uh, are sort of mixed, uh, which are which tend to be older, whiter, and more Christian, also have a lot more political power, and they are more Republican. And so there's a, a collision in American life right now between a culture that is ahead of even the demographics and views of the country oftentimes, but a political system that is operating well behind it. 
I mean, even given the different weightings and issues in the system, even if you like somehow took that out, like they're the Republican Party, the dominant party in this country right now in terms of who holds political power, keeps losing the relevant elections in terms of the popular vote. They're just are still winning power because we reweight things um, uh, through the Electoral College and through the structure of the Senate, through gerrymandering in the House. So that has created a, a real instability in America. Um, something I see in a lot of our political debates, which is always interesting and is distinctive, is that our you will often have every side believing itself to be powerless at the same time or believing itself to be the one under threat at the same time. There's no agreement on who is winning, no agreement on who holds power. That hasn't always been the case here, but it is the case now, and it creates a particularly unstable situation. It is one of the things that I've noticed is is, uh, the, the kind of victim mentality of the people who run the country, which I, <laughs> you sort of think, well, hang on. But aren't you in charge? You would think. Um, I, I, um, I, I'm really interested in, in this relationship between culture and politics and, and particularly some of what you were just talking about in terms of how uh, the role, of, you know, the social media majors play in both shaping culture and then therefore shaping political discourse as well because we are seeing some of that here. There are some characteristics we share, you know, Younger people don't turn out to vote in the same weight that older people do. If you look at the weight of government spending, uh, it tends to benefit older people, therefore, which has the corollary effect of young people not thinking there's anything in politics for them, so they don't vote. So, you know, it sort of repeats itself on on that kind of basis. Um, and, and that's a pattern that's been around for, you know, as long as our political system has been around, as far as I know. It is interesting to me at the moment with things like the school strikes movement, that for the first time in my lifetime, I've seen you know significant political uh, effort exerted by the younger generation over something that they think affects them directly. Of course, it does direct directly affect them, um, but a, almost a countercultural sort of element to it, which is they're saying that the status quo is not serving is not serving their their futures, and a lot of that is. You know, they've connected via social media, the, you know, the, the, the sheer scale of the protests here in New Zealand and around the world was enabled by those those social media platforms. And yet they, they do have their downsides, right? I mean, they, you, you're talking about that, about the, the nature of the algorithm. And one thing that I find frustrating in politics is I keep getting told, you know, you need to name an enemy, right, in order to kind of galvanize your site, your team. And, and and I I kind of detest that as a notion, um, even though there are definitely winners and losers in our society. And that's why I hate you. The idea that we, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, just you know, this idea that we want to chop up our population into these little groups and then set them against each other in order to further our political aims seems not in the best interests of anybody. Ultimately. To me, I and yet it's it's kind of it's what we get told that's what works. Yeah, I I agree with that. I don't know if it's what works to be honest. I mean, to again speak in, inside my system, which is the one I know best. We've been going through that argument and advice for a couple of years now. And um, first, Donald Trump won the election unexpectedly, and and he's a guy whose entire politics is about enemies. Entire politics is about confrontation, feuds, fighting. People said, well, it's never going to work. You can't tweet like that and be president. Turns out, actually, funny thing. 
So then in the Democratic Party, the conventional wisdom quickly congealed that you had to sort of meet Trump with counter Trump. You had to develop an equal and opposite energy to him. Um, you had to name your enemies. You had to mobilize. You had to like, you know, and, and this was expressed in different ways. But I mean, if you go back to the Democratic primary debates, which um, uh, probably very few people in New Zealand watched, but I had to watch them. Like this is a very common argument made not just by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but by almost every candidate on the stage except one. So Joe Biden ran this campaign where it often seemed like his argument was not that you should love me, but that you shouldn't hate me because I don't hate you. He ran this campaign that was very much not about naming enemies. He ran a campaign that was in many ways quite dull. And it would not have worked if he had not been Barack Obama's vice president, but it's not the only thing there that worked. And so now Biden, right the second, is up in the polls by almost 10 points, which is really very unusual for, for this country. And it reflects coronavirus and it reflects idiosyncratic things about Donald Trump. But something that's interesting about it to me is there are two types of polarization and ways of thinking about polarization. One is the polarization you feel towards something, right? The attraction to and the other is a repulsion from. It's called polarization and negative polarization. An argument I make in my book is that negative polarization is in some ways a really key force. There are a lot of Republicans who didn't like Donald Trump in 2016, but they feared Hillary Clinton. There were uh, plenty of Democrats who didn't like Hillary Clinton that much, but they feared Donald Trump. One of the things that Joe Biden is showing in the way he's running this campaign is that the natural way that the political junkies think about that equation is to say, well, if it's a polarized system and it's hard to change people's minds, then really all that matters is mobilization. So I should just do anything I can to excite my side as much as possible. And at least in this current context where the president is, I think, widely understood to be doing a poor job, what Joe Biden, I think, has decided is that his value, his strategy is not going to be to mobilize his side as much as possible. He's going to let Donald Trump do that for him. And he's actually going to focus on running a campaign that lowers the degree to which the other side considers him unacceptable in the hopes that plenty of people who maybe don't love Democrats, maybe don't love Joe Biden, are just going to say they're fed up with Donald Trump and, and go in that direction. I bring this up in this context only to say that in America, where it is really seen that the politics of enemies is unbelievably powerful, nevertheless, the Democratic nominee is somebody who quite um, quite uh, publicly eschews that kind of politics, speaks gently of Republicans compared to his uh, cohort, where the last president before Donald Trump, um, Barack Obama, was also not a huge fan of the politics of picking enemies and mobilizing around them. He was much more of a uh, a candidate who focused his rhetorical power on unity, not to say he never had his fights and feuds, but they were not the central um, molten core of his politics. And, you know, both of them seem reasonably, you know, Barack Obama was quite successful electorally. We'll see where Joe Biden ends up, but currently the signs for him are, are optimistic. And so that is a received wisdom. It is certainly how things feel on social media and elsewhere, but I'm not sure it's true. I, I saw a uh, another example of that from the other side during the 2008 presidential election campaign. Uh, yeah, when, that was Barack Obama 2008, wasn't it? Um, against John McCain uh, in, in a town hall meeting that John McCain was holding and, you know, somebody in the audience got up and talked about how um, Barack Obama was a um, Muslim fundamentalist or something like that. And John McCain sat them down and said, no, he is not. No, he is not. He's a, you know... Um, you know, decent 
you know, human being who I know who uh, has no ties to terrorism and who, um, you know, goes to church and all those sort of things. Uh, and it was an interesting moment. Uh, he said, I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff, right? You know, that's what this election's about, but but he's not the person that you think that he is. Um, and, and so before when uh, you, you were, you know, you said that I'd caught you on a bad day uh, and you were talking about what you feel like is this level of breakdown uh, in, in, the, in the governance, not just the system, but the actual overall governance of, of the country, sounds like it's reversible. And, and not only that, from, based on what you've just said about the Biden campaign, sounds like it is reversing. I would say that there are parts of it that are reversible and to me clearly so and then parts of it that I'm not as sure about. I think the easier question is could American politics or any politics run more decent, moral, genteel, values-oriented candidates? I think in general we have. I think Donald Trump is an aberration in that way. The things where I worry about our capacity to act as a country, even when more, even when politicians I respect more are in power, those are harder. Um, I would say that America has a series of problems, but the one that I focus on most is governmental paralysis. And governmental paralysis is very difficult to change for the same reason that it exists in the first place. if the system can't get consensus to do anything at all, then the idea that it can get consensus to change itself in ways that one side or the other might think will help them or hurt them is very unlikely. And so everything you're saying there is true about John McCain. I, I think he was a, 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 a... I miss what he brought to the Republican Party quite deeply. But the broad trends of politics here were in place then too. Um, You saw them in Barack Obama's presidency. And I want to say you saw them in John McCain's campaign. So John McCain picked Sarah Palin as his uh, vice president. She was very much a Trump forerunner. And one of the very interesting things to bring this conversation back to climate, where we've been talking, um, which we've been circling, of course, is that so John McCain uh, introduced one of the first climate bills into the United States Senate. He was very early on climate. And in the 2008 campaign, he had a carbon cap and trade program in his agenda. The first thing Sarah Palin did after the campaign, and I remember this because I was at this institution, was she published an op-ed in the Washington Post calling cap and trade cap and tax and like assailing it. And so Palin, who at that moment was understood as potentially the future of the Republican Party, was seen as somebody who had been electrifying on the campaign trail in a way that sometimes John McCain had not, had connected to the id of the GOP in a way John McCain often didn't. So the first thing she did after that campaign was stake out in her role as a leader of the Republican Party that no, the Republican Party was going to be on the other side of this issue. And then as you go forward in that presidency, John McCain gets more afraid on climate. And he says some things questioning the science of it. He is not an ally when the Obama administration tries to move forward with a cap-and-trade plan. And so that, in some ways, I, I again, a fan of John McCain um, in, in, in a hundred different ways, but I think it's easy sometimes to overread that moment. You know, as you know, my book is very much about the structures of American politics. And the structures over time can warp even good individuals. The, uh, the trends can warp even good individuals. I'm, you know, again, uh, the whole point of this podcast 
is for me about drawing lessons that we can learn from the rest of the world and stories that we can point to, examples we can follow or or, or not, uh, depending on you know what the example is. If if it's about structures, then what do you think the what are the design principles that you would put in place to ensure better outcomes, better governance, a better quality Ooh, of politics? That is such a good question. So in in my view for America, I would like to see small d democratization. I would like it to see that it is easier for people to vote, that when they vote, the what the majority wanted is what um, is the political coalition that takes power. That political coalition is, you know, with again minority protections and 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 constitutional boundaries, is able to roughly pass the agenda they have promised. And then the public can decide did they like how that came out or not, and decide whether or not to return that party to power. We have a lot of blockages to that in the system. It's funny because when I say it like that, I don't think it sounds that crazy. You have a vote. The people who the voters wanted to win, win. Those folks do more or less what they said they do and the voters judge it. Like, yeah, like, isn't that how, but it's not how it works here. Like, that is just not how we do it. So I would like to change that. I do want to make sure I'm not giving climate change short shrift here. I think something that I would like to see happen in, and I know this is not a building of a structure exactly, but I am... I am somebody who I think I broadly identify myself on on the left side of the spectrum, but I really believe that our only way out of some of the most profound problems we face, including climate change, is technological. And so one thing I would like to see happen is that for the parties to just become much more focused on their role as funders of basic R&D. I'll give you an example of a place that's very close to my heart. I care a lot about um, climate change and I care a lot about animal suffering. I'm a vegan for reasons that are um, first and foremost uh, humane, but secondly, environmental. And one of the single most promising trends in life right now to me is the rapid rise of plant and cell-based meats. The uh, the innovation in that space over the past five years has been astonishing. The rise in market share, astonishing. Um, that is something that governments fund almost not at all. And yet meat consumption and production is a massive contributor to climate change. For governments to be putting 10 or $15 billion um, over the next couple of years into supercharging innovation in this area could have tremendous value. I mean, particularly as India gets richer, as China gets richer, as Bangladesh gets richer, as countries get richer, they want to eat more meat. If that meat can be provided in ways that don't that doesn't harm the planet and don't harm animals, that would be remarkable. And so there are ways I'd like to see the political institutions change, but also ways I'd like to see the political discourse change. I'm somebody who thinks that the left has become a little bit too skeptical of technology um, and government too often sees its role as simply protecting people against the vicissitudes of life, which we're not doing a very good job of over here, and not as helping to build and invest and finance the future. Particularly rich countries and older countries tend to get a little bit stuck in their own past and they begin to lose vision. And I'd like to see some of that vision reemerge. I'm... I'm... <laughs> You know, as I have been this entire time, uh, relating to everything through my own experience, uh, which is in, in, we're all, in we're some all ways trapped that, in our own little spaceships here. <laughs> well, precisely, right? Precisely. So, I, I, you know, one of the things that we have done 
uh, over the course of the last three years is to put in place a politically independent climate change commission, um, the job of which is to advise successive governments about what the um, envelope for our emissions should be and how much it should come down to advise on pricing you know, boundaries for our emissions trading scheme, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, and also to suggest avenues of government policy. And the intention there was to try and depoliticize the debate um, and, uh, and, and to ensure a level of continuity between governments, whether they flipped left or flipped right at any given time, because we're dealing with a multi-decade challenge and therefore you need a level of policy consistency, even though we know in a democratic system that governments are going to change um, and, and that therefore you know, priorities and pace and direction will, will also change. It's just the nature of it. Um, and and so we tried we tried to build that in. Now it's only it's only just up and running, so it's it's far too early to tell. But one of the things, one of the debates that I encountered while we were putting that in place is, in doing that, it requires everybody to compromise. You know, so I I belong to the Green Party. I'm the co-leader of the Green Party, in addition to being a government minister. Um, and and there will be things that this group of experts say about what, what it is that we need to do that my party won't like. <laughs> you know, that's that's in the nature of it. And, and, and there will be lots of things that other parties definitely w- won't like. I mean, I can guarantee that fact right now. And, and so one of the, you know, because this institution is only just getting up and running uh, and, and kind of the first round of advice is yet, is yet, is yet to arrive, is how do we how do we make that leap of faith where uh, to some extent we, we have to live with the fact that in order to make the whole thing work, uh, it's going to involve us giving up some dearly held truths? It's a hard question. And I don't, to be honest, I don't know the players in your country well enough or the structures in your country well enough to, to say I think I have an answer to that. We have had a history here and particularly in the Obama era, a heavy reliance on independent commissions. Um, we had them on immigration. We had them a number of different times on budget and deficits. There have been a million of these in different ways on climate. Uh, and the ideas come out and they don't have a lot of energy behind them. I One version of it is it reflects the level of pre-existing consensus and energy in the system. I mean, in the past in America, sometimes things like this worked. Uh, Famously, there was a big commission like this on Social Security here, which is our pension program in the 80s. But also, I think an important part of this is the degree to which the public is or is not involved. And elite commissions can do a lot, but typically what elite commissions are doing is providing cover for politicians to do what they already want to do. To the extent an elite commission is meant to get politicians to do something they don't want to do. Well, then you get into a real, like, well, them in what army? And that becomes a real question about whether or not that elite commission has public legitimacy, whether or not voters are engaged and involved, what avenues voters have to push people. Um, Like, those become very, very important questions in that kind of context. So, you know, I don't think there's anything magic about having a bipartisan or independent commission. Um, The magic comes when either much like the company that hires a management consultant to tell it to make changes it already wants to make when the politicians are looking for an excuse to do this already, or when the public is looking for credible pass forward and is going to demand difficult change out of its own leaders. I mean, that, that's the thing that worries me. We have plenty of examples of independent commissions and reports and so on and so forth where the government said, 
thanks very much. Uh, we will duly consider it and then <laughs> never sees the light of day uh, because the, the actual act of doing what is what what is being suggested just falls into the too hard basket and and when it comes to climate change my worry is that it could easily end up that way right because you know setting up an institution is the easy part um, doing what it tells you to do uh, in in kind of rapid decarbonization of the economy is is another thing I think that that sounds right to me but you know I think it's uh it's at least one one thing to try and one place to start I, uh, I, I, you may have answered this question earlier, and and uh, you know you said that you weren't feeling terribly terribly hopeful, um, but when you look around the world, where, where do you see the balance sitting at the moment? What do you mean when by comes, the balance? Sorry, well, when, when it comes to the balance of hope versus its antonym, <laughs> oh, despair. I'm, I guess. I'm I'm sorry, I'm very much on its antonym right now. Look, what it, you, you'll know this. You, you would know all this better than me, so I don't want to be the one telling you any of this. Um, but virtually no country on Earth, and maybe no country on Earth, was really on track to meet its um, commitments, uh, at least if they were already over them, uh, on the sort of long list now of international climate accords we've had over recent years. China is getting richer and emitting more carbon faster. That is happening too in India. It's happening too in a number of developing countries. And the rich countries aren't doing their share nearly rapidly enough and have been in a turn towards a nationalist transactional approach to international affairs. So now that's great. And then the US and China are at odds and our relationship is worse than it's been since the opening led by Richard Nixon in the 70s. So that's not great. Um, and we're going to need a lot of cooperation between our two countries if uh, anything of sufficient size will be done. My... Again, my hope comes from the remarkable technologies being invented, from the young people organizing, from the, you know, the question is not to me whether or not in 40 years we'll have the technologies and the political consensus to act. The question is whether you believe it will be too late. It's one reason I sometimes um, at least entertain questions around geoengineering and other things that might bias time more so than than some of my um, colleagues and compatriots do. But you know, if you believe the tighter timetables, do I think we're going to solve this problem in the next 10 years? I do not believe that. No. Do I think we'll solve it in 20? No. Um, but do I think things are, you know, do I think there are reasons, there are things one could look at to be hopeful? Sure. It's just they don't, they don't tend to be up to the scale of it. But, you know, um, I wouldn't take my, my view on this for very much. Uh, I'm just I'm just one guy who's been trapped in his house for months. <laughs> thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Ezra Klein for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Given the proximity of the US elections and the impact that it will have on climate action around the world, we're going to stay in the US again next week when I will catch up with the activist Bill McKibben. I'll see you then.
This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, Listing P, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.